This morning we continue our series called Earthy Spirituality. We are taking a journey through and looking at different episodes in the life of David. Um, Today is one that I would hazard a guess that probably most, if not all of you, uh, have not heard a sermon on this particular text. And I confess to you, I've never given one. So let's see how this goes. Um, We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 14. And it reads like this. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Ai's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead, They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that... God answered prayer in behalf of the land. 
Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space where heaven and earth meet. Amen. Who here has not sought God more urgently in need than in abundance? Maybe some of you. I cannot make that claim. I I was reminded as Pastor Dan prayed for our our friends in Maui um, of our experience with wildfire. We were evacuated twice when we lived in Northern California for wildfires in 2017 and 2019, and I can guarantee you there is nothing like the fear of seeing a wildfire coming over a ridge that will inspire one to pray. Who here among us has not sought God more urgently in need than in abundance? The text that we come to this morning may seem, uh, actually doesn't, not may seem, is a difficult text. There's all kinds of questions and uh, things that we as modern people would be interested in knowing and would be important to us as to why this story plays out the way it did that are of no interest to the biblical authors. We see in verse 1, the text tells us that that there is a drought or a famine for three successive years, and David sought the face of the Lord to find out why. One wonders uh, when that seeking of God's face began. Did it begin in month one of famine? Or was it only after three years that David began to earnestly seek God's face and to find out what was happening in Israel? Either way, David sought the face of God. He sought out the answer. He went to God and he asked, why is it that we are experiencing this famine? And the answer that he received, according to the text, is because of Saul's blood-stained house that Israel is suffering. It is because Saul broke covenant with the Gibeonites that Israel is suffering. Now, there's a a second, before we get into uh, what's happening here, there's a, a, a second kind of parenthetical warning, if you will, in this text. We learn as we read the first several verses that there's a famine. We learn that David sees God's face. We learn the cause according to the answer that David received about what uh, the cause of the famine is. Then we learn that David summoned the Gibeonites and he asks them a very dangerous question. We'll come to the question in a minute. There's a warning in the, in the, par- in the parentheses of verse 2 at the end that I think we would do well to consider. The text tells us at the end of verse 2, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them, the Gibeonites. 
Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate the Gibeonites. Perhaps this should serve as a warning for us when we get a little too zealous about our own priorities and beliefs, no matter how well-founded they may be. Because in this text, the reason that Israel is now suffering, according to David, is, that, uh, is because of Saul's blood-stained house. And Saul's house is stained with blood because of his zeal for Israel and Judah. Now, if you do the math, and this is about, this is about to get a little uncomfortable, Saul was a patriot. Saul was patriotic about Israel and Judah. And his zeal for it caused him to break covenant with the Gibeonites. He was making sure that he was keeping Israel and Judah pure or whatever, whatever vernacular or idioms he used. He was passionate and zealous about Israel and Judah and it led him to do something that actually caused Israel harm and the Gibeonites harm. And so we would do well to pay attention, to question ourselves and our motives even and especially when we are absolutely, 100% passionately sure we are right. That perhaps is when we should seek the face of God to make sure. You know, it reminds me, one of my favorite uh, old Christian recording artists was a guy named Rich Mullins. And I heard him, uh, on a, or I saw him on a video once talk about the Psalms and how vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, he used to say. And, and his response was, yeah, and I just want to be about the Lord's business. Right? That's how we get when we're zealous. So I think there's a warning there that we would do well to pay attention to. But now on to the other pieces in this text that are so fascinating. David summons the Gibeonites to find out how to make amends. Actually, the text says how to make atonement. Two important things to think about here. Responsibility and listening. Responsibility and listening. Notice that David is taking responsibility for actions that were not his own for the healing, rescue, restoration of Israel. Did you catch that? David is taking responsibility for actions that were not his own to bring about healing and restoration in Israel. David did not break covenant with the Gibeonites. Saul did. David did not slaughter the Gibeonites. Saul did. It would be very easy for David to say, well, you can't say that I'm guilty of this because that was Saul. 
But David recognizes that he doesn't have that option. He is king of Israel and he has to take the responsibility even though he didn't commit the act. This is one of those places where the Bible gets really uncomfortable for us, right? David takes responsibility. We would do well to note that while David was not guilty of Saul's actions, he had a responsibility to make them right. He chose to address that responsibility for the good of his people. Second thing that I notice in, this, in these first two verses of this text, notice that the first step in that process is actively listening to the Gibeonites and hearing their experience. This can be a really dangerous and painful thing for us to actually ask those who have been wronged and what their experience is and then actively listen. Not listen to say, well, yeah, but, oh, but, 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 and provide answers, but to actively listen. David come, asks the Gibeonites to come. He asks them what it is that they want. And here again, I believe there is a very specific and direct correlation for us. It comes as no surprise, I would imagine, to pretty much anyone in this room or listening online that we live in a country that continues to struggle with its history and, how, and what the way forward is to heal the racial divide and tensions in our country. I think that's very clear. So perhaps we might take a lesson from David and recognize that while we may not be guilty of those acts, we are responsible to address them. At Kent Cove, we are committed to leaning into learning how to demonstrate welcome and radical hospitality to our neighbors, especially our neighbors of color. We have talked about before and I will continue to remind us over and over again that the world has come to our neighborhood. We don't necessarily have to go on global missions because the globe landed here. The wall that you see when you come into our welcome center is very intentional. There are a lot of languages there that I don't even know what they are, but they're spoken in our schools. And so we would do well to listen and to learn to understand the experiences of our brothers and sisters of color to better welcome them into our community. We do this by continuing to learn. We do this uh, by offering opportunities to engage in learning and conversation. And so we will continue to offer book studies, opportunities for you to have conversations and better understand our history and our own uh, complicity and our own uh, 
work that we need to do to understand how to welcome our neighbors and brothers and sisters of color. And this applies not just to those who do not attend here at Kent Cove yet, but those who do. Here's a radical idea, challenging. I dare you to go to one of your brothers and sisters of color who, who call Kent Covenant home, who have been here for years, and ask them with, with a commitment to not respond, to ask them what their experience of welcome in our community is. And just hear what they have to say. I suspect that you might be surprised. I also want to tell you that your staff and leadership team will be doing very intentional work this fall that seeks to help us better understand our own cultural blind spots so that we can better welcome each other and our neighbors in the name of Jesus. We want to seek and ask the question and to hear and learn and understand what it takes to actually welcome in the name of Jesus. Now, moving on with the story. We pick up in verse, verses five through nine. As, so David has summoned the Gibeonites. He's recognized that he has to take responsibility for what's happening, and he asks this very dangerous question. What shall I do for you? David is putting skin in the game, so to speak. Now, a couple of things before we get into that. Note that this story, like much of the David narrative, is not as straightforward as we would like. We read these stories and we read them with Western eyes and ears and we like them to progress in a certain way with certain information that really makes sense to our cultural sensibilities. That's not the way this works. So first of all, we need to point out, interestingly, that actually, at least in the biblical record, there is no record of an action of Saul against the Gibeonites. Interesting. There's no record in the scriptures of Saul, wipe, of, of Saul committing any atrocities against the Gibeonites. And we also need to be, recognize, or be aware that it is politically expedient for David to eliminate anyone with a claim to the throne. This would have been standard operating procedure in that day and age. As you will see, you know, if you read the whole story of David, from the time he becomes king until the time he dies. His throne is constantly under attack in one form or another, many of them coming from his own sons. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. But notice that David does what the Gibeonites ask. So David comes, he brings the Gibeonites in, he says, what should I do for you? What can we do to make this right? They say, well, we can't ask for silver or gold, we can't ask for the life of anyone, but then they ask for seven lives. And then David gives them the seven lives. Two of them uh, direct descendants, or direct sons of Saul, and the other five grandchildren. All of whom would have had some claim to the throne. 
or could have made a claim to the throne. So David gives them these descendants and thus uh, appeases and makes right things with the Gibeonites, but also happens to remove seven different claimants that might cause him trouble in the future. Quite handy. But notice something else. This is not the end of the drought. David gives them these seven men. They, they kill them and expose their bodies, and the text just moves on. The drought does not end at that point. How do we know that? Because as we enter the next part of the story, we, we learn when the drought ends. Notice this woman, Rizpah. I have to admit, while I'm sure I have read her name before, I did not know her story to my impoverishment. Rizpah is an amazing woman. Have you noticed that in this narrative, as we've gone through the life of David, there are a number of places where we meet amazing, strong, fierce, intelligent women that stand out even though in that culture and even in the story itself, they don't get a lot of play. But if you're paying attention and you watch closely, it's pretty amazing. Rizpah is one of these. Rizpah is a woman who was one of Saul's wives. A lot of translations read concubine. There's some, some scholarly debate about whether it should be concubine or kind of second-class wife. Because if she was just a concubine, her children wouldn't matter. They wouldn't have any legal rights. But if she's a wife, they, they are recognized. And they might have some claim. So there's an argument there. No matter, Rizpah has been a pawn in the political games during the transition from Saul to David before. Go back and read 2 Samuel 3. Rizpah gets a really bad deal in that whole transition. Rizpah has, as most women, as all women in that culture, no agency. But she does what she can. And verse 10 tells us that Rizpah took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies. She did not let the animals touch them by day or wild animals by night. Rizpah guarded those bodies because that's all she could do. She guarded those bodies she has nothing left but her grief and her witness to stir David to action. Rispa spreads her sackcloth and she stays there until it rains and until David is shamed into action. She shames David by her witness to do honor to the, to the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and these men that were taken. And it is only then that the drought, the famine, ends. It, verse uh, 24, I believe, or verse 14 at the end. So David sees this witness of Rizpah. 
He goes and he gets the, the, the bones of Saul and Jonathan and he, and he buries them properly and he takes care of these other bodies as well. And the text then says, after that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Perhaps both of these acts of David and Rizpah are a prefiguring for us of the son of David, the one who takes on responsibility for sin that is not his own, the one who intercedes with God on our behalf, the one who sits with us in our grief and our pain and in the rawness of life and intercedes for us to God. This is the good news. God did not leave us to sort out our sins on our own, but instead he took on the cost himself in Jesus. He took on the responsibility for our wrongdoing, for our sin, and he interceded on our behalf. He made it right even though it wasn't his own. The only question, brothers and sisters, the only question, friends, is will we accept the gift of God in Jesus Christ? Will we accept the one who intercedes on our behalf? The one who sits with us in our grief and our pain? The one who will one day make all things right. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is that friend and defender and redeemer. He is for you and for me. May we accept the gift he offers and then be transformed to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Amen.